Hello and welcome to Series 3 of Made at UCL, the podcast. My name is Karis Bradley and I'm here to share with you UCL's groundbreaking research and its impact on the world. Each month, the Made at UCL team and I will be exploring a research theme and gathering stories from all over the UCL community to try and understand it. In episode two, our theme is navigating the arts, which is a pretty intimidating topic to me. I was once told that you only truly feel at home in the arts when you're confident enough to double back against the flow of traffic at an art exhibition. Can you imagine? They have one-way signs up for a reason, you know. I haven't really done art since I scraped my C at GCSE more than a decade ago, but I feel like, during the last couple of years, because of the pandemic, I've been rebuilding my relationship with art, and with crafts especially. I recently took up lino printing, for example, and it's been so exciting to start something completely from scratch to develop a new skill and to be right at the beginning where the whole project is filled with potential. It reminds me of starting out as a researcher and having all these different questions to answer and approaches to try out. So, despite my lack of knowledge in this area, or maybe because of it, I was excited to learn more about the world of art and different approaches to navigating it, as told through the eyes of UCL. In today's stories, we're going to hear about how science is understanding the world of music, how art can be used in climate change research, and how it is only when we combine both emotions and logic that we can understand our relationship and navigate the spaces around us. Our first story is brought to you by Molly Rasbash as she learns about the prevalence of eating disorders in the world of classical music. Here's a quick content warning for the next section. It includes a discussion of eating disorders and their risk factors. If you're not ready for that today, you can skip ahead 10 minutes to the next segment. There's an abundance of literature on the benefits of music. For example, for dementia, building relationships, even memory. Music is often thought of as an escape, something relaxing or fun. Uh, so there was a surprise that music can have uh, sort of a negative impact, but it's not really music, it's the, 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 the musician's lifestyles. People who dedicate their lives to the arts have more to navigate than just the arts themselves. The arts are synonymous with a certain lifestyle, which also takes some negotiating. To learn more about this, I spoke to... Dr. Mariana Kapsetaki. I'm a medical doctor, a neuroscientist and also a classical pianist. I studied medicine in Greece. Uh, then I did um, a master's at UCL uh, on performing arts medicine. Then I did a PhD at Imperial College London. Then a postdoc uh, at UCL, again uh, looking at uh, memorability. And now I'm working in Greece as a, a medical doctor. Quite the lineup, right? Mariana, being a classical pianist, has spent many years observing musicians. She noticed that the lifestyle of musicians was punctuated by risk factors for eating disorders, like anxiety, stress or depression. It starts all from when you're a young child, like how you're taught, like with classical music, you have to be so exact. Mariana decided to focus her master's dissertation on eating disorders in musicians. I had noticed that um, many professional art musicians and mainly those that travel a lot, it seemed to me that they had a lot of like anxiety, stress and maybe depression and all these um, factors are, they are risk factors for eating disorders. Mariana identified certain aspects of a musician's lifestyle 
that are different from a typical working life and potentially inducive of eating disorders. Many people have like a nine to five job and that's it. You always know that's nine to five. You have a, a steady salary. You don't worry about that. You don't worry about uh, whether you're going to have uh, a salary like next year or going to have a job next year or something like that. So For musicians, a lack of this security can cause problems. Basically, you never know what's coming up. So you uh, you might have a last-minute concert in the other side of the world and um, the next month you don't have any concerts. And concerts are usually, say, nighttime and you have to eat after that which is not very good i mean eating one o'clock at night or two yeah so and also because you're in, in another country you're not sure about what to eat and food you eat i mean it's not what you're used to and maybe a lack of sleep mariana created a survey and with it recruited over 300 english-speaking musicians worldwide half of the survey was like demographic things age gender um Things about their musical career, like whether they were soloists or uh, working in the orchestra, or whether they travelled abroad or they were only based in the UK, and other things like to do with their musical career. The other portion of the survey sought to see if each participant thought they had had an eating disorder at some point in their life, alongside definitions of each eating disorder for clarity. Also, there were questions which related to typical risk factors, depression, anxiety, stress and perfectionism. The research findings reinforced Mariana's thoughts and exposed much about what navigating the arts really means. The main finding was that uh, one in three musicians reported having an eating disorder sometime in their life. And also we found increased levels of depression, anxiety and stress. So all, all the, the risk factors for uh, eating disorders. And this is higher than in the general population. In a hundred and three hundred musicians is quite high because in the normal population it's like uh, maybe one percent. I mean, it depends on the eating disorder. And there were also differences within these results. For example, classical musicians had increased the level of perfectionism in comparison to non-classical musicians. Age and gender also seemed to be important factors, with eating disorders being most prevalent in females and during teenage years, which aligns with previous research on the general population. The findings from the study can go on to guide improvements in mental health support for musicians and increase practitioners' awareness of the risk factors in musicians' lifestyles. That's the thing with most psychiatric conditions, that it's difficult to see whether they have one and it's it's not just that you might look too thin in anorexia nervosa or in, in another like binge eating disorder you might look very obese but it's also about um, some people can die from eating disorders like especially anorexia nervosa or they can cause like serious complications so they're quite serious yeah. Through this research, Mariana uncovered vital information about eating disorders in musicians, but the sensitivity of the topic posed challenges for the study. It took more months to do the ethics than the actual project, really. <laughs> People don't want to talk about psychological, psychiatric problems like depression, anxiety and all that. So that's why it was important to, to make an anonymous online survey so nobody knows whether you completed it or not and you can say whatever you like in the survey. Uh, because these are yeah, psychiatric things and nobody really wants, wants to say whether they have a depression, anxiety or things like that. 
Despite the stigma around the topic, this project has had a huge impact on academic and non-academic audiences. The paper has been downloaded over 11,000 times, discussed widely in mass media, was selected for multiple awards, such as the Spring of Nature 2019 highlights, and Mariana has been invited to talk at numerous conferences. One reason Mariana attributed to why this study resonated so much with the public and media was that it was novel and interdisciplinary. Mariana's interests, which bridge music and medicine, offer a unique perspective on both arts and science. I mean, everybody used to tell me, I mean, keep on telling me, uh, when you're going to decide if you're going to do medicine or music. But I wanted to find like a way to, to combine these things because I love both of them. I have absolutely no musical ability and I hold a really romanticised image of musicians and their lifestyles. This study has been so interesting for me as it has unveiled another angle to what living on tour and on stage is actually like. This study tells us about the reality of navigating the arts. Stressful and unpredictable lives produce risk factors for eating disorders and other psychiatric problems. Mariana's study served to fill a gap in academic literature and public consciousness, and given its impact, has succeeded in her aims of bringing awareness to this conscientious topic. If you're struggling with disordered eating, please reach out and get help. Talking to your GP is a great first step, or contact BEAT, the UK's primary eating disorder organisation. So, from using science to understand art, to using art to understand science. Next up, Ariana Razavi brings you the story of a groundbreaking art installation and community project about climate change in East Sussex. On boats. Some of the principles of um, defence, for example, they don't change. And you think about um, defence in depth, and you think about um, remaining agile, maintaining a reserve, um, maintaining deception, you know, all-round visibility, and you think about manoeuvre, and all the other, like, the principles of, of how you would set up a defensive position don't, don't change. To protect a bit of land is to listen to it. Dr. Dmitry Suslau is a lecturer at the UCL School of Slavonic and Eastern European Studies. He was one of the curators of a public art program in Rye that was focused on the intricate relationship between people and their environment. I spoke to him about the program and how he is using art to explore climate change. This project is really unique because it thinks about the interaction between art and discourse. It's not just about the sort of physical dimension of art, but also its its impact. So sort of what was yeah, what was the project and how, how did it get started? I would call climate art a um an an interdisciplinary uh, public art platform or commissioning body, which I started together with my dear friend Yevgenia Raftsova, who works at the Victorian Albert Museum. And it's a project that looks at how art could be a tool and a vehicle of bringing together communities, first of all, as well as researchers, academics, uh, creative practitioners, artists, uh, in this joint conversation and hopefully action to do with um, the crisis we're all facing, the climate crisis. 
As part of climate art and the exploration of the relationship between art and public consciousness, Dimitri put on an exhibition called The Vanished Sea Without a Trace. It was opened in Rye in East Sussex in the ancient uh, town, very pretty, uh, uh, two miles roughly from the coast. And the exhibition itself was the outcome of the three months uh, residency we had there. And again, we had this opportunity together with Evgenia to start this project there. It was our first major uh, project. So by looking at the city, which is obviously so historic and has so many layers culturally, uh, for us, obviously, the, the key focus was the very complex relationship between the sea and the town and how that very complex, very nuanced um, urban ecosystem emerged through this uh, strange and unpredictable at times interaction between the sea and the landscape. And what we wanted to do there together with Evgenia was to create this um, space for three practitioners, not necessarily just visual artists, to create artworks that would be site responsive. So they would not just honour, but they would engage with rights, history, but most importantly, its community and its current predicament, because now we obviously have this shifting shorelines and the sea. uh, And well, the threat of flooding is still very much that. We thought that for people, for the artists, practitioners, to really engage with the community of Fry, uh, three months would be a decent amount of time uh, to actually get to know them and talk to them, because we really wanted the local residents to be involved um, in the creation of whatever artworks um, we might or might not have by the end of the project. That's so great. Um, <laughs> and, and they did, right? They did interact with the... Oh, absolutely. Um, in fact, one of the practitioners, one of the residents, uh, Joseph Williams, uh, was uh, and is a local resident. He grew up in the area. Mm. And that was such a, you know, it was the idea from the start when we had an open call uh, to have a local, locally based artist. And that was great because he really not only had all those previous connections with the landscape, the community, but helped the other two artists. And I should mention their names. One of them is Alistair Dabling, who is a conceptual artist, and Mo Langmuir, who is a multidisciplinary artist, but also a citizen scientist. So she's she's been doing incredible work with the local community. So all three of them were really different and all three of them working there, um, you know, it was just an incredible thing to witness and see how they how they respond to the initial ideas we had about the residency, but also the, the place, uh, the landscape, the history. Through this residency, where artists were fully embedded and immersed in the community, they produced some incredible artwork that really touched the residents of the town. So Joseph created this beautiful bamboo pavilion temporary structure for the Rye Harbour Nature Reserve, which was wonderfully fragile yet sturdy. We had storms and everything it's withstood, but it also was a comment on transience of a local flower it was inspired by, but also architecture and construction being one of the most polluting industries in the world, really. Uh, Alistair produced this beautiful multi-channel installation uh, which responded to the themes but also really directly involved the community in production. So uh, he talked 
to interview different uh, residents there. And the key question that Alistair was posing uh, was protection of the coastline. So what does it mean to protect the coastline? And, you know, unfortunately, and that's a reality we really had to take on board. Um, and tragically, I suppose, that area close to Rye is where a lot of the refugees attempt to come to the UK. And obviously, the refugee crisis is so interlinked with the climate crisis that we couldn't quite avoid and we didn't want to avoid it. We had to really engage with it. And so Alistair did work with a local charity that works with refugees in both making of this film, but also getting his understanding of the area. I think one of the former refugees did also take part in the making of the film and um, she's interviewed in the film. And thirdly, Mo. Mo's work was harder to define, but what she produced towards the end was an exhibition and she called it sort of tongue-in-cheek uh, Rye, Rye Zone Museum that was a reference to a local publication which she found in a supermarket and uh, then got to, uh, got to know the editor. And because, you know, Rye is such a small place, that was absolutely fantastic, so the artist really got, got to know the people. It's clear that working with local artists and truly understanding the local community was crucial for this project and really shows how important it is to work at the grassroots level when it comes to the climate crisis. I think this project really shows the role that art can play in the life of a community and in understanding the environmental crisis around us. Translating science into art can impact individuals and as we've seen in this project, entire communities in a way that pure facts and science cannot. This gives me a lot of hope that we'll see new ways to come to terms with climate change and learn what we can do about it. Yes, I think that with this kind of uh, climate art projects, not climate artisan projects made by us, but uh, projects that would like to bring together art and science, there is um, the inherent danger that the scientists would see and obviously it's all in quotation marks, but, but the you know, researchers could see art as an illustrative tool to whatever uh, sort of research they've been doing. And I don't think that's exactly the right approach to take. The, the pickle we're in at the moment is because some things are not working exactly. And I think art really was its in, uh, being so undefinable, but also being so free and, um, and, um, and also having its own internal logic could really help direct some of the research that's being conducted now. Or, um, and I think that's really the potential we are trying to harness with climate art. I think we can really see from the Rye project that art can really be a tool for both understanding the climate crisis and its impact and mobilising communities to make change. To find out more about the Rye exhibition and other upcoming projects, please find links to Dimitri's work in the show notes. To conclude today's episode, we're taking a step into the world of experimental psychology to learn about an interdisciplinary research project that might just be able to answer the question of why I feel so uncomfortable viewing art out of order in gallery spaces. Our final story is from Maria Bunyan, who has been investigating the neuroscience behind how we navigate space and the tools that scientists have developed to study this. When we think about navigating the arts, we often think about understanding and connecting with them on an emotional level. Rarely do we actually think about, you know, navigating them. Let's consider how we quite literally spatially navigate them. For this, we must bring together the worlds of navigation and space, architecture and art. 
This is the exact subject of Lara Gregorian's Spatial Cognition PhD here at UCL, which she's conducting in the Institute of Behavioural Neuroscience. My research sits at the intersection of architecture, neuroscience and psychology, and what we're interested in doing is better understanding, well, at the really broad scale, human experiences of the built environment in architectural spaces. Lara has two main components of her research. Firstly, how we navigate and encode spaces, and secondly, our effective responses to the inbuilt environment. So that's how we evaluate spaces and how they make us feel. Combining these two areas is something unique that Lara brings to the field. Really, if you think about any experience you have in the built environment, these two things are happening simultaneously and they're being impacted by the space itself, as well as you know, a host of personal factors. I wondered what we could learn from research in this area, and Lara explained the importance of empirical findings. We're constantly in built environments. It's the, it's the context of 90% of our experiences in life. And we have this understanding that they not only shape how we move and make choices, but also shape how we feel and respond and interact with people. So their influence in our actual lives, you know, is pretty, pretty great. An example of this is a boundary or a wall in a building. Not only must we spatially navigate this, it may also incur an emotional response, such as a threatening feeling. So it becomes really important for us to actually understand how spaces themselves are influencing people's ability to navigate them and how they feel when they're within them. Given that this is a relatively new era of research, Lara has established her own methods to study this everyday phenomena. One big component of our work is that we have been thinking about what stimuli to use. How are we going to get people to actually experience these architectural spaces? And what we've done, which we think is the first of its kind, is developed a data set of videos that walk people through first person journeys through different built environments. So the, the viewpoint you would have if you were navigating through a space. This data set is key to the field because most previous studies use still images or VR. Videos merge the benefits of these two methods because they describe real spaces and provide the feeling of dynamic movement through them. To visualise what the stimuli are like, imagine taking a 30 second video of the space that you're in. Just start at one end of the room and walk or pan through to the other end of the room. This is what Lara finds when she studies people watching these videos. There's three key qualities, hominess, coherence and fascination. They've been shown to be important factors in how brain and body responses to built environments. These qualities measure the degree to which an environment feels like a personal space, the ease at which we can comprehend an environment and how interesting it is to us. And looking at spatial properties of the space as well, so their spatial complexity and unusualness, which we think will impact memorability of spaces. We find, much like they previously have found with images, we find in our videos that there are uh, relationships between fascination, coherence and hominess and valence, as we would expect. But we also find that arousal is connected to some of these properties, which is sort of interesting additional finding we've got because valence and arousal are the two core components of core affect. With this work, Lara is able to distinguish the relationship between aspects of human experience and emotion with architectural features. 
we're thinking about these experiences in relation to how you feel about them and your effective response, then it's really important to consider these two components of effective experience. And so what we found is that arousal is seems to be linked to fascination and spatial complexity and unusualness. I think Laura's work is meaningful in a number of ways. Firstly, it's demonstrated that her method of using videos works. This could lead the way for future studies because it's sophisticated, yet simple to use. Secondly, the results are psychologically interesting because they provide insight into how we process spaces. And thirdly, this work highlights how fundamental our experiences in the built environment are because of architectural features. And so it's really important to understand truly what it is that is affecting humans and what those human responses are. And if we're able to understand this sort of like cognitive processes, well, we would be able to just open up like a a far better understanding of how these different elements interact. To me, Lara's research is particularly valuable because of her interdisciplinary approach. Not only is Lara bringing together the psychological fields of spatial navigation and emotional responses, she's really integrating the fields of psychology and neuroscience with architecture. And this is important because this is how humans work in the real world. Human experience is not in distinctive categories. Research at the intersection between neuroscience and architecture has existed for a couple of decades, but even now it's still building momentum. I do think a huge problem is often interdisciplinarity can hit a lot of barriers in terms of everything from, you know, funding to bringing different academics together. It's like there are just barriers which you have to be willing to overcome or you have to be in an environment that encourages you to overcome them, which I feel fortunate to be in. Lara did a Bachelor in Arts and Sciences at UCL, allowing her to read a variety of subjects from maths to anthropology. This was when Lara first began to study the psychological impact from built spaces. Keen to pursue this line of research, Lara then conducted a Master's at the Bartlett, where she studied how buildings can be designed to promote people's health. Now, in her PhD, she has a primary supervisor in behavioural neuroscience and a secondary supervisor in engineering. This has empowered her to master both subjects and champion an interdisciplinary approach. This shines through in her work and it means it's closer to real life and easier to apply in the future. But it's not quite this simple. It's a tricky one at this moment in time because I think the place that we're at is it's not directly... Okay, what designers want, what the, what the ideal outcome will always be is to say, this is what you need to do in the real world, in reality, to create the best experience for people. But that is, you know, like the million dollar question that really we're never going to have so clearly, so simply, because people are so different. There are so many factors at play, lots of different things. But that's hopefully kind of where we're going towards. I think we're at such an early stage of this whole process that what I personally really like is explaining this area of work to people who may never have even considered the fact that their environments impact them, and particularly their built environments. I think people are pretty comfortable with the idea of green space being really important, but I've noticed from my own interactions that people have far less of a sort of conscious understanding of their everyday environments, that the, the, the more built environments impacting them. After having talked with Lara, it's dawned on me that I should think more about the spaces that I'm in. 
I now understand why I might prefer the more open, bright spaces of modern buildings compared to closed, darker spaces of some older buildings. I'm considering how I can make my student flat more relaxing because the compact space and lack of light may be having a bigger impact on me than I'd ever thought. And there may be some changes that I can make that could make all the difference. It's really fascinating to think of all the processing that our brain is doing just to find our way from one room to the next and to process how we feel in these spaces. With Lara further developing her research, I look forward to finding out more about how architectural features impact our experiences in buildings and to see how this could be applied to the buildings of the future. Well, there you have it. We can use science to help us understand art and artists, but art can also be a useful tool for scientific research, and only when we combine the two can we really understand how things work. Thank you for listening to the second episode of Season 3. We'll be back next month with more stories from the UCL community. In the meantime, if you want further information on any of the projects featured in today's episode, you can check the show notes for links, pictures and more. You have been listening to Made at UCL, the podcast. To listen to previous episodes or find out more about life at UCL, visit www.ucl.ac.uk forward slash made dash at dash UCL or subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast. This episode was presented by myself, Karis Bradley, with stories from Molly Rasbash, Ariana Rosavi and Maria Bunyan. It was produced by Hallie McCarthy with support from UCL and featured theme music from the Blue Dot Sessions. For a full list of audio credits, please see the show notes. Special thanks to Mariana, Lara and Dimitri for sharing their research with us. This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insights and expertise through events, digital content and activities that are open to everyone. See you next month.